Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Glad to see you all. My name is Joe, if we've not met before. Uh, we want to welcome you, and we want to especially welcome you if this is your first time visiting us this morning, uh, or whether you're a longtime member. You know, the truth is, there are so many hurdles to get to this gathering on a Sunday morning. These, uh, these hurdles can be practical, these hurdles can be emotional, or both, but you're here. So, everybody, they're here. You came, and it's good, and it is good to see uh, you all. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to grab it and turn with me to Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible, you can find it in your phone, or you can just listen along. We're going to be flipping around in the Bible this morning, uh, but we will begin where Mark begins in his gospel Chapter 1, verse 1. Now, normally we would be turning to James as a church, uh, but we are taking a break from James to focus on Advent. And also, as a note, we are offering older kids class this morning too. So if you're wondering about that, in the hallway over there, our older kids are having um, their own message. And so that can be available to you as well. This morning though, in here we're going to be taking a break from James to focus on Advent. And if you're in a home group, you know that we've also been focusing on neighboring. And so what we're doing this morning is we are asking, what happens when you combine Advent and neighboring? In other words, does Advent have anything to do with how we love those on our block? Does Advent have anything to do with those that we share walls with in our apartment complex or our dorms. Last week, Aaron showed us that Advent has everything to do with our neighboring. And in the next few weeks, throughout the remainder of this season, we're going to explore this even more in two ways. First, that Advent flavors our neighbor love. And secondly, that Advent fuels our neighbor love. And for the next two weeks, we're going to talk about how Advent gives our neighbor love a particular posture, a particular stance, a particular flavor, or accent. And then we will see how only Advent can fuel the kind of neighbor love that God is calling us, and that our neighbor deeply needs, as well as ourselves. So let's just first pray before we dive in this morning. Lord, with the words of my mouth, and with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning, be pleasing acceptable to you. You are our rock. You are our redeemer. This is your word. Would we behold wonderful things in it this morning? Ultimately, would we behold Jesus? Holy Spirit, would you make it so that our hearts would sing of Jesus, that our hearts' wounds would be healed by Jesus this morning, that we would sing of him, that he would be our song as we leave this space, as we leave this gathering, that he would be everything. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, so over the years, I've learned not to skimp on salt when you're boiling pasta. I've shared with this uh, before. <laughs> Chefs say to cook pasta in, in water that tastes like the ocean. <laughs> Someone disagreeing with me? Okay. 
because pasta that comes out of like very salty water tastes better. Can I get an amen? It just yeah, tastes better. It's, uh, the pasta takes on the flavor of the salty water. You could say the pasta has a salty accent upon leaving the boiling water. And the same is true for us. This is what I want us to think about. We are seasoned. Whether we know it or not, whether we believe it or not, we are seasoned by the water we swim in. And this could be a bad thing when we take on harmful flavors in this fallen world. It can be a good thing when we take on the flavors of Jesus and God's kingdom. But either way, we are taking on, we are being seasoned every moment of our life. This is why I'm glad that hope takes time to observe Advent, because Advent is like seasoned water. It's not just some religious rite that Christians observe, but Advent is a story, a true story, that we inhabit, that we live in, that we swim in, that we find our identity within, our hope within, our anchor within. It's well-seasoned water. And if we allow it, the true story of Advent will indeed flavor, and can indeed flavor all of our lives. So first, what exactly is the story of Advent? When we say the story of Advent, what do we mean? Well, the story of Advent finds its place within the larger story of the world. Dr. Michael Williams describes the larger story of the world that the Bible tells in nine words. God made it. We broke it. Jesus fixes it. That's the grand story of the world in nine words. And Advent finds itself like a Russian nesting doll within this greater story. In other words, how does Jesus fix it? Those last three words. And the answer is, by his Advent. By his Advent, by his coming. Which has two stages, really. Advent 1 and Advent 2, we'll say. So Advent 1 is the first arrival of Jesus. So Aaron took us to John 1.14 last week, if you were with us. John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Lord moved into our neighborhood 2,000 years ago. He became what he wanted to say. The author became a character in his own story. And because Jesus is truly God and truly man, he lived on our behalf. He lived on our behalf. He died on our behalf. He was raised on our behalf. And that is the first advent. That is the coming of the Messiah, of Jesus. But there is a second advent as well. Because Acts chapter 1 tells us that Jesus, after his resurrection, ascended to God's right hand in the sight of his disciples. We're going to look at this passage a bit this morning. This understandably left the disciples awestruck so that they were looking into the, into the skies, the scriptures said. And they were flat-footed. And maybe they were set, you know, maybe they were sad to see Jesus go. Maybe they were just sort of confused about what they uh, witnessed, or maybe they were in awe of what they just witnessed. But either way, they were shocked, and they were just standing there, their chins up, and these two mysterious men in white approach them and say, "Don't just stand there." Essentially, I'm paraphrasing. Don't just stand there. Uh, 
Jesus just sent you on a mission. We, you, have a, you have a mission. So don't just stand there. And by the way, Jesus is coming back in the manner that he, you just saw him leave. And that for us, friends, is the second advent or coming of Jesus. And so Christians live in an interesting time. We live between Advent 1 and Advent 2. We know the already of Jesus' finished work. We read about it in the Gospels and the letters to the early churches and leaders in the early church. As John puts it, like we have, we have what they hoped in, we have touched and seen with our eyes. So this is true. And yet, we wait for his return. We wait for all things to be made new, for all things to be righted that are wrong. And this creates a tension. It's been called the already, not yet tension. Living between the Advents creates a tension in our walk with Jesus. And I believe that if we simmer in this, swim in this tension long enough, it will season the way that we live. In ways that we may not even be aware of. It will season, it will give us a distinct flavor that others ought to notice, like an accent, especially in our neighboring. We are talking about neighboring this fall into winter and early spring. And it occurs to me that, and I don't know if this is true for you, but in my neighborhood at least, neighbor love is not a controversial thing. In fact, neighbor love is sort of like, you know, high stock right now. Kindness and, and loving your neighbor and, and, and really just being, being a good person is really just everybody's, everybody's good on it. Most people value it, whether they're Christians or not. Neighbor love. But this is where Advent comes in. Okay? What if our neighbor love was flavored by, informed by, the story we're living in? Advent. Like, how would that give us a noticeable or unique accent in our neighbor life? Does it change anything? Or is it just something we celebrate? See, ultimately, I think we're called not just to be good neighbors, to be Advent, but to be Advent-shaped neighbors. And that's what I want to look at for the next two weeks, is what it would look like to be an Advent-shaped neighbor. And I've been thinking about this question for a long time, and I sort of want to offer seven different ways that Advent ought to flavor our neighbor love, what makes our neighboring unique. And I want to talk about three of them today. First of all, I want to, I want to say that Advent ought to make our neighbor love uniquely humble. When our posture towards our neighbor is seasoned by Advent, it will not be from higher ground, but lower ground. Why? Well, let's just look at Mark 1. We're looking at Mark 1, starting in verse 1. I'll just read, you can follow along. This is Mark's Gospel, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it was written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. Talking of John the Baptist. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all of the country of Judea, that's, that's a lot, and all of Jerusalem, that's a lot too, were going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. 
And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, let's just focus in this passage on one word for now. And that word that Mark uses is gospel. It's in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel. The Greek word Mark uses here is euangelion, or, or the, sort of the word we get evangelism from. Euangelion. It means simply good news. Good news. And it was a very common word in Mark's day. Because it was a word that was tied to the rulers of Mark's day. The emperors. Whenever an emperor took the throne, or had a birthday, or was making a visit, the sort of newspapers of their day would all declare you on Yelp. Good news. Good news. The emperor is here. Good news. The emperor has done this. Good news. The emperor is this. This is the good news of Caesar. And you can look back at documents to this day that declare the euangelion of Caesar. So do you see what Mark is doing in verse 1, right away? He's saying that the arrival, the advent of Jesus is the true and perfect euangelion, the true and perfect good news. He is the true and perfect emperor or king over and against everything else. And this explodes with implications, as you can probably start to imagine. But I want to focus on just one today. The word gospel, good news, is an externally focused word. This is a word that points away from our efforts towards somebody else. In this case, Jesus. It means our okayness is not rooted or met by something inside of us, but our okayness, our salvation, is rooted and met by something outside of us. We are not saved by something we do, but by something that we did not do. King Jesus is born. King Jesus is taking the throne. That's Advent. And if we embrace this euangelion, this good news, it ought to make us profoundly humble. Our salvation, our okayness, our center of balance is not something we did. It's not something we're doing. It's not something we will do. It's all from God. Salvation is from the Lord. And this is the true key to humility. It's been said that the gospel is not good advice, it's good news, and you can see the difference now. If our okayness was based on advice, we would be proud. First of all, we only take advice that we think we can do, and then when we start doing it, we give other people advice, and it makes us proud. Our gyroscopic balance is in ultimately our life. But if our gyroscopic balance in life is the news about something else that happened outside of us, Jesus, then we have no claim in our life except our neediness. 
and the sufficiency of Jesus. And this makes us humble. Advent, by the very word, the arrival of something else that came to save us, ought to make us humble. In fact, if it doesn't, we're probably not living in the Advent story like we think we are. And this true humility, I think, is perfectly demonstrated in the ministry of John the Baptist. John, as we read, had a, we'll say, uninvited fame by his ministry. It says that all Judea and Jerusalem were, were sort of going out to him in droves. And he could leverage this fame for his own glory very easily if he wanted to. He had a lot of followers. But instead, he says this about the advent of Jesus. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie his sins. In John's gospel, he says, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. Untying sandals was the lowest, most humble thing in this ancient culture that someone could do. And John says, I am lower still. Why? How could he say such a thing? Because Jesus is his euangelion, his good news. His ascended king. He knew in his depth that his hope was not in himself, but it was in Jesus. And that enabled him to sort of have a clear perspective on his faith. And put it aside. Advent, in other words, is the news that the deepest security comes from without, not from within. Do you believe that? Your deepest security comes from without, not from within. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian who famously defied Hitler and ascended the Buchenwald concentration camp, where he was eventually martyred for his faithful refusal to bend his knee to Hitler. Well, it was this man who compared Advent to waiting in prison. In prison, there was no possible way to be released from the inside. Except from the outside. And that's the story of Advent. Our rescue is only from the outside. We can't lay claim to anything except our neediness. So maybe you've heard me share before that I had a professor in graduate school or seminary uh, who would require his students to, rec- to recite the words of John the Baptist from John 1 verse 20. So in verse 19 in John it says, When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem and asked him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. The question, who are you? He says, I am not the Christ. He doesn't say, I'm John the Baptist with all these followers. I mean, I'm pretty I'm, I'm a big deal. Like I am, you know, what Isaiah talked about, that's me. That person leading the way, rolling out the red carpet, I'm the red carpet guy. He didn't do any of that. He just said, I'm not the Christ. And so we, at the beginning of each class, would have to go like one by one by one by one by one and just say, I am not the Christ. 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 This is a room full of past, future pastors, future church leaders. And it was a sobering tonic every time we gathered into this class. I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. We are not the point. And nothing we can do can save others or ourselves. It is only Jesus, and that should make us humble. And that's not just true for pastors, it's true for neighbors. It's true for neighbors. If we center in this reality, 
it will flavor our neighbor love. It has to. I think it challenges some temptations that I see in neighbor love. And the first way it challenges is what I'll call the patronizing neighbor. This is when we're shaped more by our accomplishments, our status, our possessions. And so when we help our neighbors or we love our neighbors, it's more, it's patronizing. Like we're the patron up high and they're the client down low. And we're loving them with our position and with our possessions. That's, that's sort of a, a strangely proud form of neighbor love. But Adam says your deepest identity is one of utter dependence. Everything you have, everything that you are is because of the advent of Jesus. And that challenges this patronizing impulse at its root. We are on level ground. I think Adam challenges the judgmental neighbor. This is when we sit on what I'll call imaginary moral high ground over and above those we live around. We feel morally superior to those we live around. But Adam enables us and maybe requires us even to admit that our neighbors are oftentimes better people than we are. Because Adam is the humbling truth that God saves us not because we're awesome but because he wanted to. And we are needy. And this means we're willing to admit our sins very readily around our neighbors. We're, we're eager to find and name our blind spots, ways that we harm others. We're, we're, we're safe to do so because of our identity. We're eager to do so. We don't have any moral high ground. We're morally bankrupt, saved by grace. So Advent, the good news of Jesus, I think, makes us uniquely humble in our neighbor love. It seasons our neighbor love with a profound and, and Lord-willing, true humility. Our hope is outside of us, not within us. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second way I think Advent can sort of season our, our neighbor love is by making us more adventurous. In it. Risk-taking. By nature, I think uh, we are all like hobbits. This is my one Lord of the Rings re- reference for the year. <laughs> um, as you all know, I can get carried away. But we are like hobbits. We'd rather sit in our holes and drink tea. And when the opportunity for adventure comes, something that breaks our comfort routines, we hide. <laughs> we just hide but the more I think Advent shapes us, the more we simmer in, in this sort of two Advents, living between the Advents, the more plausible adventure becomes. The more plausible a life of interruption becomes. The less tied we become to our comfort routines. Because Advent gives us a unique double security. We live between the comings of Jesus. If those are our anchor points, it, it sort of rests free, this sort of idol of control and comfort that is so tempting to bend our knee to. We live between the Advents. Jesus arrived, 
He's arriving again. That means we have two security anchor, anchor points in our story. And so I want to look at Acts 1. I referenced it earlier. Because I believe these anchor points can make us bold. Bold in our neighborhood. And so Acts chapter 1, if you turn with me. We'll start at verse 6. When they had come together, they asked the Lord, the resurrected Jesus here, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Perfectly legitimate question. And he said to them, it's not for you to know, times or seasons, that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit will come upon you, Pentecost. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the whole ends of the earth. That's an adventure. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood behind them, beside them, in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way you saw him go in to heaven. So these men in white robes tell the disciples to stop standing there. Why? They had just been summoned to, uh, by Jesus himself uh, to, to a great adventure, really. A mission that is so much bigger than their individual story. And when they waver, these angels, in a way, preach an Advent sermon to them and say, Just like Jesus came and was with you, Jesus is coming back. In the meantime... In between these two solid anchor points, you have an amazing mission. See, the first advent and the second advent for them were secure anchor points for their soul. And this double security made them bold. It didn't encourage their comfort schemes. It actually challenged their comfort schemes. Because they had a true security in Jesus. The word boldness is like the word in the book of Acts. It just comes up over and over again. So consider Peter in Acts 4, verse 13. Acts 4, verse 13. We see, now when they, religious leaders of the day, saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I love this because it's really an Advent-shaped Seasoning, isn't it? They recognize that they were with Jesus. There's like a, an accent in their, in their way that set them apart. And it was only Jesus set them apart. The Jesus who had come and the Jesus who's coming back. Those are our anchor points as well. See, Advent tells us that we are okay, no matter what. Okay, if you're in Christ, you hear, if you forget everything else I say this morning, remember this. You are in Christ. You are okay. No matter what. Okay? And that anchors us. It can. And when it's made real by the Holy Spirit of God, when that reality is made real to us by the Holy Spirit, that has the power to unleash a surprising U-shaped boldness. In your life. Whatever that looks like. 
So Harvard professor Amy Edmonds says she wrote a book called The Fearless Organization, creating psychological safety in the workplace for learning, innovation, and growth. Now, I learned this week, I've not read the book, but I have learned this week that this is a quite popular book in organizational circles and business circles, and especially the concept of psychological comfort. Maybe some of you have heard this word thrown around in your, in your place of work. Psychological safety. It's this theory that, this, that Amy Edmondson pulls out that business teams tend to thrive and grow in all the good ways when everybody, every individual on such a team feels safe to take risks. It's one of those theories that you're kind of like, once it's stated, you're like, well, yeah, of course. That makes sense. And if that's true of a business team, that, that we grow, that we thrive when we feel safe to take risks, if that's true of a business team, how much more should it be true of God's people who have the Holy Spirit and live between the Athens? Oh man, we have the greatest measure of psychological safety that you could possibly have in the euangelium, in the gospel. It's unwavering. It's not tied to us, but somebody else. Which means we of all people can be bold. See, I think this reality, this boldness, I think it can answer some great hurdles to neighbor love that I see in my own life, and maybe you can recognize as well. And the first hurdle is this, that neighboring is, when it gets down to brass tacks, neighboring is messy. When we open ourselves truly to help our neighbors, we potentially, or maybe certainly, open ourselves up to all kinds of messy scenarios, complications in life. And if we already have enough complications in our life, that's just like a non-starter, <laughs> okay? That's why we all have porches in our backyard these days. Let's just have our house, keep to ourselves. For me, I think messiness is like the number one hurdle to actual neighbor love in my life. This fear of mess. But I think the double security of Advent gives us a security to invite or at least be okay with messes. And trust that Jesus is more reliably present in that mess than in our comfort schemes. So, we look at Advent number one and we say, okay, Jesus entered into my mess. I can now enter into other messes. It's okay. I think another hurdle is, is just timidity. Timidity. Uh, maybe we don't want to step out there in an actual neighbor help. We'll, we'll say neighbor help. Sometimes the word love can be a little too vague and hazy. But as Paul Miller says, sometimes it's better to, to translate the word love in the Bible as helpfulness. Because helpfulness automatically makes things concrete, doesn't it? So concrete, so neighbor help. I think maybe we don't step out there because we can tell it will cause ripples. Um, it'll sort of break the script of our neighborhood, the unwritten rules. Maybe we don't want to come across as strange or we don't want to come across as weird or intrusive. But I think the double security of Advent can sort of break that and make us, make us bold and adventurous in our acts of neighborliness. Paul said to Timothy, God didn't give us a spirit of timidity, 
but a spirit of power and love and self-control. The third hurdle, I think, is time. And the Art of Labor in this book we're walking through as a church, I think is doing a great job talking about this hurdle of time. They describe how our lack of time to love those around us, to help those in literal proximity to us in our neighborhoods and in our dorms and in our apartments, oftentimes is a symptom of an of a, of a issue that's upstream. Upstream, we have out-of-whack priorities, which then hinder downstream our ability to ask that next question with our neighbor. You know how you like strike up a conversation with your neighbor, and you're, you're here, and you, you kind of ask question one, answer, question two, and there's like question three, which would, would just be a little bit more, hey, like I really am present with you right now. I really am available right now. It's that next level thing that I think a lot of us keep away from because it is, it's, it's risky. It's risky. How can we make that time to give a meal, to hear a story, to help start a car, to have folks over, to ask that next question? I think if we simmer and have it, we will slow down. Maybe enough while everyone else is speeding up to do so. I mean, Advent, if you think about it, is a way, a different way, to keep time. Advent is a different way to keep time. Our, our sort of paradigm for time is the arrivals of Jesus. We relax into the double security of his arrivals. And that can slow things down for us. And it can create space that we never knew we had for our neighbors. Now I want to talk about a third thing. So humility and adventure. But what about this? Calmness. How can Advent create or season our neighbor love so that it is a calm, a calm neighbor love? Right now I think our neighborhoods are trembling and shaking with anxiety. I'm told that anxious systems are like herds of cattle. I don't have too much experience with herds of cattle, but apparently when one cow panics, like it starts to run, what happens? They all panic and start to run. And I've also been told by experts that anxiety is like an electric field that flows through us all. And that's how I believe most of our neighborhoods are they're like these super high voltage electrical fields of tenseness, anxiety, fear. And there's a lot to be afraid of. There's a lot. I don't need to make a list, do I? Of all the uncertainties going on in life right now, both macro and micro. I don't. But I think Advent can be an utterly unique gift for such a time as this. As we engage our neighbors. And engage our neighborhood. I think Advent has the capacity to call those in Christ. And this calm neighbor love can be a gift to others. So to explore this, I want to look at the prophet Zephaniah. We heard Andrea read from this text uh, this morning. Zephaniah, if you want to turn there, that's fine, or you can listen along. He was a prophet during a time when God's appointed leaders were not doing their job. And in this leadership vacuum, Zephaniah, God, through Zephaniah, promises a future where God himself will be their leader. 
So Zephaniah 3.14 says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. That's God's people. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult. So here God is saying, Sing. Sing. Start singing. You can start, stop weeping and start singing right now. Why? The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. And the King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. The true King. All your failing kings, forget that. The true king will be in your midst, and you shall never again fear evil. And on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. Listen to this verse. The Lord your God is in your midst. He's not far off. He's in your midst. The Lord your God is now your leader. In that vacuum, there he stands. A mighty one will save Whatever image you're conjuring up right now with a mighty Savior, you've got to add this to it as well. Because God says, He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you. That phrase. He will quiet you with His love. He will exult over you. With what? Loud singing. This promise is astounding. Verse 17 is astounding. Because this is the holy God who created all things. It describes what one, color, what one scholar calls, quote, the deepest inner joy and satisfaction of God himself in his love for his people. That the Holy One, listen to this, should experience ecstasy over the sinner is incomprehensible. It is. In fact, if you read Zephaniah carefully, you will notice that it starts with a summons of our singing, our song. It says, Sing, O Israel, sing. And how does it end? Do you remember? It ends with God's sing. begins with our singing. We gather to worship. We sing to God. We sing our praises. And then, did you know that as we do so, even on this Sunday morning, God is in a way singing harmony. And He's singing over you. He's delighting. Even as we delight in Him. And I think the advent of Jesus is proof of this. It has to be. Because how else could a, could a holy God exalt with inner ecstasy, as that scholar puts it, over sinners, unless Jesus came on our behalf. Why? To bring us into union again, into relationship again with God. That joyful relationship of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus brings us in and gives us a taste of so that we can now be sung over by, by, by the Lord Himself. That was the mission of Jesus. He came to give us fellowship and delight in God and the delight of God. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And that's Advent. The Advent of Jesus fulfills this promise. It does. This promise that God delights in you, it does. The Advent of Jesus fulfills it because Jesus comes to give us his fellowship. 
That's why the angel, okay, in Luke's gospel, says to the fearful, uh, fearful shepherds. Maybe you know the story. It's Luke 2, verse 10. The angel of Luke's gospel tells to the fearful shepherds, Fear not, for behold, what? I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. The joy that Zephaniah promises is here in the birth of Jesus. And I think this has a capacity to quiet us. God says this. He will quiet you with his love. We're going to start singing, and then once we hear his singing, we're going to preach like it. And it calms us. It brings the temperature down in our hearts. And I think it has the capacity to bring the temperature down in our neighborhoods, too. Some have called this being a non-anxious presence. Have you heard that before? Being a non-anxious presence, or a, or a GNAP, a godly non-anxious presence. A GNAP. This godly non-anxious presence has been compared to uh, an electrical step-down transformer. I know most of you know what that is. Um, just kidding, because I don't really know what it is. But I will say this. Years ago, my boys heard an explosion outside our, our uh, window at our house. It sounded like a giant firework. And so we ran to the back window, and we looked out, and our telephone pole, where all the electrical lines are running, um, was on fire. Like from the top. Yeah, it was just on fire. So I called 911, the fire trucks came, that was fun. Kids got to go into a fire truck, that was cool. It was an event. Everybody's walking out, watching this telephone pole catch fire. Um, we later learned that the step-down transformer stopped working. That's what happens, okay? So what happens is you have this trash can thing, looking thing on top of the poles. Have you seen those before? What their job, they have one job, and this one didn't do their one job, but their one job <laughs> is to take this like giant sort of uh, high, super high voltage current running through the cables and step it down so they can go through my little uh, wire to my house. So I can have 110 volts, basically, and not like 11,000 volts. Yeah, or stop working. But observers of anxious systems, okay, uh, Thomas Friedman is one of them, no, no, Edmund, Edmund Friedman is one of them, notice that whenever one person stays present and stays calm, they're like a step-down transformer. They bring the voltage down. Darren Gold puts it this way. Quote, anxiety is like electricity. Too much of it and you'll get electrocuted. Leaders have the opportunity to play the role of the step-down transformer. By their mere non-anxious, non-reactive presence, they can lower the anxiety within the emotional field of the system that they lead. Well, when our neighborhood is sort of trembling with electricity, we can be a GMAP in the system. I think this is the unique accent that, that Advent could give us in our neighborhood. A godly non-anxious presence is able to be themselves and to be in contact with their neighbors. We can do this not because of some inner strength that we have or resolve, but because we're okay at our deaths. God is singing over us. And that alone can make our neighbor love calm. So two things. Calm 
neighboring is aware. We're aware. We're aware of what's going on. We, we know about and even maybe share the same sources of anxieties that our neighbors have. We're living in the same world. We're not in bunkers. We're not shut off. We're in their lives. We're rubbing shoulders with everybody. So we're very in contact. But we're also anchored in a way that the, the advents of Jesus give us. We don't have to have it all together to be called. We simply can rest. We can rest. We can have repose. We can lay our anxieties down. We can say I'm covered. We can say every day I'm anchored. Sailors apparently talk about tandem, tandem anchors. Tandem anchors are not just one anchor, but they're two. They're tandem. And when you're in a deep storm, they always say, throw out the tandem anchors. And that's what we have in Christ. We have a tandem anchor. We have his coming. 2,000 years ago, we had this return, and he will make all things right. This tandem anchor. Like, we could wake up in the morning, and we could say, Lord, I'm not going to do this perfectly, but would you, by the Holy Spirit, give me a tandem anchor in your first coming and in your second coming? Would you sing over me? Would I see in Jesus and his advent your committed love over us? And would that enable me now to bless my family and my neighbors with a non-anxious presence? See, I think Advent should flavor our neighborhood. Many of you drink coffee or tea. You know, this is an infusion. The water takes on the flavor of the beans or the, or the tea. The same with Advent. We can allow the Advent of Jesus to flavor our lives. First with humility. Then with adventure. And finally, Advent calm. And here's the thing. We'll close up here. When we fail in our neighborhood in these three ways, and we will, Here's the good news of Advent. You ready? You still have God's ecstatic delight. Don't you dare, like, make your takeaway from this sermon, like, I gotta be a calm neighbor in order for, you know, my life to be straight. No, 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 no. It's because you have the ecstatic delight of God over you that you can't pursue these things. They're given to you, Jesus. And so go out and love your neighbor well. Maybe think of some faces right now, or some cards right now. You have God's eternal neighbor love in Jesus. You have it. So let's love our neighbors. Amen. Lord, would you indeed liberate us from ourselves so that we would see your delight in us, in Christ. Would that give us a unique flavor in the way that we live as you've sent us to the And it's in your name we pray. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.